I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 16 for our Old Testament scripture reading. We won't read the entire chapter this morning, um, but we will give attention to verses 9 to 18, but to recognize that the whole chapter is dealing uh, with an incident uh, with which Israel just can't seem to learn her lesson. This is the issue of the Lord's own provision uh, for Israel of manna in the wilderness. And this is, in fact, a portion of Scripture that Paul will reference in our sermon text this morning. Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling, their cries because they were hungry. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, so say to them, In twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what what is this? The Hebrew word for that is manah. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And so Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. The people of Israel did so, and they gathered some more and some less, and they measured it with an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat on this manna. Now turning with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So we continue working our way through Paul's exhortation to this church as he's taking up that diaconal collection for the poor in Jerusalem. We're going to give focus to uh, verses 10 to 15 this morning, uh, but we'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes this, saying, We need to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, for the grace of taking part in the diaconal relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so should he complete among you this act of grace. And as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
Now verse 10. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I did not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Just as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered had Whether gathered little had no lack. This is God's word. Let's take a a few moments as we go before the Lord and ask him to bless uh, the preaching of his word. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the mercy of God and the grace of God that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we contemplate what this means in terms of our own discipleship, we ask that you would give us much wisdom that we might give cheerfully, but also wisely that these things will be done to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As you've noticed now for the past several weeks, Paul has been giving attention to the nature of Christian giving. I think it's very easy for us to kind of gloss over and read chapters 8 and 9 as one gigantic chunk, failing to recognize that Paul is actually laying down a number of principles that help us understand the nature of Christian charity. What we've seen so far can be summed in this way. God cares for us in body and soul. The proclamation of the gospel is that God has sent his son to save sinners, to deliver us from our sin and misery, but we are not Gnostics. There's not simply a concern for the soul, but we find that in Christ's kingdom in the church, there is a concern for both body and soul, as Christ has, in fact, given an office dedicated to the preservation and concern for the material needs of the people of God. This is known as the diaconate. And Paul's concern here is taking up that diaconal collection, uh, as is translated here in the ESV, the relief that is to be taken uh, for the saints who are in Jerusalem who are suffering a massive famine, not to mention persecution and many other struggles. We're reminded that the same uh, Savior who taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, is also the same God who taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so we see here that there is a concern that our Savior has for us in terms of both body and soul. And since we as a church have been bound together in love, we are called to tend to each each other's needs as well. And that includes tending to each other's material needs. And Paul has set forth two particular models to imitate. First, he set forth uh, to the Corinthian church the model of the Macedonian churches, um, churches that actually existed on a lower socioeconomic uh, plane than the Corinthian church. And yet Paul says, you need to imitate them in their giving. It's not the question of how much you give, but it is a question of the manner and the cheerfulness that you give. The second principle he lays down, or the second model we saw last week, where the Lord, uh, or when Paul uh, sets forth the Lord Himself as the model for giving. That the riches of Christ 
found in the salvation he gives becomes a model and an analogy for how it is uh, that we deal with our own uh, uh, material blessings that the Lord has given us, that we give to others uh, uh, as well. In other words, what Paul has been driving at is that our wallets must be discipled as well. There must be a cross shape, a cruciform pattern uh, to our own financial giving. Not so much in the amount, as much as it is what we do with our wallets. Uh, He's been focusing on proportion, and now he'll focus on a couple other principles as well. I think at this point, if we were simply to stop reading at this uh, this particular juncture, I think it'd be very difficult for us, or it'd be very easy for me, to guilt trip every one of you into giving everything you have. Probably even to the point of financial disaster. Imagine if somebody only had the principles we had so far and, and they decided to go up to Portland or they took a trip to Chicago or downtown Philadelphia where you have a number of homeless people who are asking uh, on virtually every street corner for money. It'd be hard to make it two or three blocks without giving everything you had if this is what we had so far. What we find is Paul continues to lay down some basic principles to think about what does it mean to give charitably with a heart of cheerfulness but also to give wisely. You know, on the one hand, Paul has been encouraging us, don't hoard your funds. Don't be like Uncle Scrooge. And yet, at the same time, here in this passage this morning, he lays down some principles where uh, he helps us think about not giving everything away indiscriminately. Rather, we are called to be good stewards, to exercise that in a wise manner. And how do you... you, um, Kind of walk that fine line between being like an Uncle Scrooge on one side of the ditch or a or a Jay Gatsby on the another, a guy who just kind of throws all his money to the wind. Um, What does it mean to walk uh, in wisdom in terms of giving cheerfully uh, for the needs of those around us? And that is uh, the principle, the advice that Paul gives in uh, in matter of of giving here in verses 10 to 15. We'll consider these two principles. We call them the two E's. First, we could call uh, the first principle that of eagerness. Um, the ESV translates this as readiness. We might, um, might be helpful to think of it in terms of eagerness in verses 10 to 12. And then second principle given in verses 13 to 15, that of equality or fairness. So eagerness and equality or perhaps equity might be another way to put it. But let's give our attention to this first principle you see here in verses 10 to 12, um, that, that eagerness, that desire to give. Again, Paul's going to actually elaborate on this principle throughout the whole of chapter 9, so I think we need to reserve some of what I want to say now uh, to chapter 9 so we can actually preach chapter 9 without it sounding like a rerun. Although I'm sure some sermons sound like reruns, but they're good reruns. Um, but the focus of Paul keeps driving home uh, to, to the Corinthian church regards our attitude uh, with respect to giving. And here Paul speaks of a, not just an eagerness, but we might call a, a persevering eagerness. Maybe I can give an example. When I was in seminary, uh, I had a, a red F-150 pickup truck. It was, uh, it was like the best truck in the world. I had it for 14 years till it got totaled. Um, I wasn't in the car. It was hit by two different cars on the same day. But anyways, we can mourn the death of my truck on another day. Um, but the, the, the fact is, is the reason I got to know everybody on campus is because I was just about the only guy on campus with a pickup truck. And so guess what that meant uh, at the start and the end of every semester? Strangers who I've never met 
calling me going, hey, you're the guy with the pickup truck, can you come help me move? Hey, I just purchased a couch uh, on Craigslist, and I've got to pick it up in downtown Philadelphia at three o'clock on a Friday. I know you, you and I have never met, but could you help me out? First couple of times you go, yeah, sure, why not? But when it happens nearly every weekend, um, it gets tiring. And there are times we just go, no, I can't do it today. And, and then the question is, well, why not? And you go, well, I don't want to. How can I think of a nice, you know, Christianly way to say I don't want to help you out? I'd rather just sleep in or, you know, watch reruns of WKRP in Cincinnati. I don't know. To do something, anything, but help out yet another person uh, doing this. Uh, you know, I, I think any of us can, can help somebody else uh, on like a one-off thing, but it's that time and time and time again doing that, that, that persevering through the giving to give of yourselves and, and not ask anything in return. It really exposes your heart real, real quickly. You know, the first few times it really kind of, it caters to your ego when somebody asks you to help. But after that third or fourth time, uh, um, uh, the ego then kicks in. You're sick of being flattered. You want people just to leave you alone. This is one of the things that Paul's getting at here, is that there needs to be a persevering uh, aspect to our giving. This, uh, Paul's not just giving attention to the duty that we have as believers towards one another, but also to the delight that, it, that, that is to be entailed by it. Both duty and delight. It's not either or. It is both and. Think of what would happen uh, if you only had one as opposed to the other. James, the, uh, James not our deacon James, but the, um, the, the guy who wrote the letter of James in the New Testament. He deals with this in his particular letter. Uh, he says, you know, somebody comes knocking at your door in the middle of the night and says, I'm hungry. And you answer, oh, I'm so sorry you're hungry, brother. I'll pray for you. Um, it doesn't do much good for the guy who's hungry. You might be eager to pray for him once you get back to bed. But Paul calls that, or uh, James calls that a dead faith. But the, the flip side, the opposite side of the ditch is also equally problematic where you just kind of go, oh, okay, I guess I'll give you some food. And then you kind of let them know in a very passive-aggressive, maybe even an active-aggressive manner, how much of, a, of an annoyance this is to you. Uh, both, both are wrong, but Paul is dealing with both the action and the attitude of the heart. Reminding us of our particular duties as Christians, but that we are called to do it delightfully. We are called to do it cheerfully. And you see here that the, the concern that Paul has is, is, is really trying to, 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 to hit, hit your affections. His concern is the heart. Love leading to action, not a guilt trip leading to action. If you're just you know, merely doing it in response to a guilt trip, you're only going to do it insofar as uh, you still feel guilty. But as soon as the, the kind of the self-guilt you know, uh, abates, you're going to go back to doing whatever it is that you were doing before. But you see what Paul says here in verse 10. He says, this benefits you guys. Um, because a year ago, you not only started to do this work, but you also had the desire to do it. Notice he's, he's putting both of them alongside one another, both the duty and the delight, the charity, the act of charity, as well as the cheerfulness. Corinth had taken up the collection a year ago, but they'd grown slack in their duties. The, the desire was initially there, but it had kind of fizzled out. It had not, maybe they hadn't gotten annoyed by it, but it just kind of fell off their radar in terms of importance. And so what I think is, is striking, that in verse 11, we find the only command given in these entire two chapters, chapters 8 and 9. Paul only gives one command. He actually gives it twice, but it's the same command. 
And the command is this. Complete the task. Collecting that diaconal need for, for the poor in Jerusalem, the poor Christians, the church in Jerusalem. But only this. Let your doing match your desire. And let there be an exercised eagerness. Let the delight drive your duty. Now, you think of the delight as the engine. It's the fuel that drives your action. Rather than, you know, you think of, for those of you who have kids, you tell your kids to go clean the room, and they go, okay, what do they do? They drag their feet. They start crying and screaming and throwing a, a hissy fit. Um, I think many of us act the same way as grown-ups in our, in our own way when it comes to, to things like our own Christian duties. And, and what Paul is saying, it's not just the action that counts. It's, it's the attitude of the heart. Do this, but do this delightfully. Your Savior delighted to die on a cross for your sins. Now let that shape, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. Delight to give to those in need. And yet Paul continues to say, uh, to give out of what you have. Right? This is not an exaction. It's not like... Um, you know, the, the church here is going to fit you, you know, send everyone a bill, and you look at the bill, and you go, I can't afford to pay this, you know. What, what, I, you know I have a friend, his wife is Jewish in, in South Carolina, and, and she told me once that her local synagogue, in order for them to stay in business, as it were, is they just simply send annual dues to every family. I, I believe it was based off their income. That's what it is, whether, whether or not they're, they show up every week or not, it's, they have an annual due if they still want to be a member of the synagogue. It's treated like a tax, that's not how it's supposed to be done here in the church. This is, this is not a tax. This is not an exaction. Again, I don't know how much you give. I don't know how much you make. But what Paul is driving at is to give out of what you have in proportion to what you have and do it cheerfully. He's not, he's not saying you have to give at least X percent. He's saying give in accordance to your means. Do it Do it cheerfully. As Christians, we're called to give eagerly in proportion to what we have, not in a proportion to what we do not have. I'm not telling everybody to, everybody, you know, um, you make a pledge to donate $10,000 this year, regardless of, you know, your finances or anything like that. That, that is not what Paul is doing, uh, doing here. Rather, Paul says to give in proportion to what we have. In other words, this is going to be on a case-by-case basis, according to uh, your own conscience. Paul does not even say what the proportion is supposed to be. He does not, say, he does not even say 10%. He just says in proportion to what you have. Again, the concern is not the amount, but first and foremost, it is the attitude of the heart that your eagerness would give rise to action. So that eagerness, that readiness, that delight, that's the first principle that we have in place when we think about what does it mean to give to the Lord in terms of our finances to support the needs of those uh, who, who, who need our support. But the second principle he lays down here uh, is in verse 13 to 15, and that is the question of equality or equity. You know, think about this particular scenario. Uh, you hear the sermon on giving, uh, I have guilted you into giving, and you go, that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dispense everything in my savings account and put it uh, in the church offering plate. And you go, and then you go, hey guys, look, look how much I gave. But then, then a problem comes the first of the month when you have to pay your bills, and you're not actually able to pay your bills. It, it kind of put, it puts you in a bind, doesn't it? 
at least your necessary bills. And Paul uh, reminds us that we have uh, many duties that attend uh, our own uh, uh, our own finances, how much money we make. When you think of First Timothy chapter five, where Paul writes to Timothy, saying this: "As if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household first, he has in fact denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever." Jesus himself criticizes the Pharisees for the same thing, where uh, the Pharisees concocted these kind of uh, tithing tax laws, you might call them, uh, where people could kind of skirt their duties that they owe to their family members uh, by setting aside designated funds for the church so that they don't have to provide for their family. Uh, that, that, that concept known as Corbin, uh, you see it, I, I believe it's in the Sermon on the Mount. There, there's, a, there's a hierarchy of duties that we have, and Paul says, first and foremost, you have to provide for your own family doesn't do any good if, you know, you give all of your money uh, to, to, to support somebody else when you're not able now to, to feed your own kids. Put gas in your car so you can go to work. See, Scripture calls us to care for one another, but there is a proper ordering of our responsibilities. First, your immediate family. Second, your church family. And then finally, that of others. That's the ordering that we see here in the New Testament. That's why Paul says, give in proportion to what you have. We cannot reverse that order. Of course, the emphasis we see here is on why we ought to give for the sake of our Christian brother. And so we cannot read into these verses some sort of kind of first century uh, uh, version of, of what we might call Christian socialism. There's this repeated Pauline emphasis that he keeps giving. This is not an exaction. This is not a tax. This is not the elders coming and you know, putting a gun to your head saying, give me all of your money. This is not the bully at the cafeteria saying, give me all of your lunch money. This is calling for you to give cheerfully in proportion to what you have in accordance with your own needs. That you might care for those around you. What we see in Acts chapter 4, as the church is gathering, you, you see these, the story of the, the church, uh, people even selling their own possessions and properties to give. You notice that they're doing it joyfully and freely. It is not something that the church is doing. The church is not coming and taking property from its members. And this is what people are doing uh, uh, cheerfully. In fact, the problem was when Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember the story with them, when they only gave a portion of what they had, but then they pretended like they were giving more than they had actually given so that they could look great in, in the eyes of their peers. You saw what it cost them to lie to the Lord like that. What we see throughout the New Testament is that Christians are encouraged uh, willingly to give so that there would not be a needy person in the church. Even throughout um, the whole, you read the whole of Acts, you read the epistles, it's very clear that there are wealthy and poor members in the same congregations. And Paul does not say, how dare you wealthy members continue to be wealthy. Paul recognizes it. Paul, all Paul is saying is that there is a certain responsibility the wealthier members owe to ensure that other members are taken care of, but it's not calling for a, uh, a, everyone to liquidate their funds to contribute to a common pot so that everybody has the exact same amount. That is not what Paul is getting at. Paul does not criticize anybody uh, for being wealthy on its own terms. Now, there's a criticism, a criticism for the love of excessive wealth. And it's always uh, easy to fall into that trap, to, to want more, to think, well, you know, these are my needs. You go, well, you know, perhaps the cable bill is not a need. 
But we do need to think how we care about one another. We need to do so wisely. Paul's concern here is that uh, the the address that he gives to the wealthier members of the congregation, uh, you see this in 1 Corinthians, here in 2 Corinthians, uh, elsewhere, is only that you consider using your abundance to help those who lack uh, in abundance. Notice the number of times that the language of fairness pops up here in this passage. Uh, If you look at verse 13, the language of fairness uh, serves uh, serves as as a sort of bookend um, to these verses. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Again, that's the language that Paul's getting at. The goal is not to have you give away everything so now that you're the one in debt. He says, that's not my purpose. But rather, the purpose that he is intending to put forth as a principle, a matter of fairness. That your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that when the day comes, if the situation is reversed, that their abundance may supply your need so that there may be fairness. And so it is, it is that principle of fairness that bookends Paul's thought here. This is not simply conjecture or opinion. What we see Paul doing is gaining insight and wisdom from his, his, uh, his meditation on the Lord's own provision of manna in the wilderness for Israel. You see here that Paul cites Exodus sixteen eighteen. It's a longer chapter. We read just a portion. I encourage you to read the entire chapter this week if you have the time. What is clear by reading the entire chapter is that this is actually a principle that takes a while for Israel uh, to, to get under their belt buckle. This is, this is a principle that takes a while for Israel to learn. Um, everyone has a jar, certain size. The size is known as an omer, whatever the size is. It was enough to, to hold enough bread for a single day. And this is what you're supposed to do. Every day you wake up, you find fresh bread on the ground, or this flaky stuff, this what is it, this manna, you go out and you collect. And you only collect enough for that one omer. You fill it to the brim. All that you need is provided on a daily basis. We go out and you're collecting, maybe you're collecting faster than your neighbor, maybe the kids are making a race of it. And somebody collects a little bit more, and at the end of uh, the the day you find that somebody only has three quarters of an omer. What's supposed to happen? Are you supposed to hoard the extra omer for yourself? Uh, the, the extra manna for yourself? No. You're supposed to kind of skim off the top, give it to somebody who doesn't, so at the end of the day, everybody has, uh, everybody has enough to eat. And the person who has too much, he gives it to those person who doesn't have enough, and guess what? There's fairness. The Lord provides for the needs of the people of God on a daily basis. And so one day, you might be the person with abundance. Does that mean you get to have uh, the extra helping of manna? No. Rather, what you're supposed to do is with that extra bit... You give to somebody who's lacking. And then the next day, um, you know, the, the situation might be reversed. That's, that's what Paul is setting out here. He says, remember the story of Israel in the wilderness. This is how we are supposed to think about this. As the people of God, as the people of God in a wilderness, a new wilderness, that period between the first and second coming of Christ that Hebrews refers to as the wilderness period of the people of God. Here we have principles set forth under the Old Covenant that tell us and advise us in how we are to steward uh, what we have been given. The Lord distributes to His church in many ways, and He says, think about what you do with your finances. Care for those who are in need, with this diaconal need. It might be that the situation is going to be reversed a year from now. Maybe five years down the line, Corinth will be the one that's in the midst of a, uh, of a great drought or famine. And it will be the Jerusalem church that will have to come to your aid. 
But the idea is that we're to do this cheerfully and we're to care for one another so that you have enough, so that all of your needs are met and provided. In other words, what Paul is laying down is not simply a principle of what we might call proportionate giving, to give in accordance with what you have, um, you know, providing for your family first, and so on and so forth, but also the, the issue of reciprocal giving. Somebody in the church is in need, you go, ah, oh, I'll help you, don't worry about it, brother, here you go. And then six months down the line, you might be in need, you bring that need to the deacons, and guess what, the church helps out uh, with you as well. That, that's the idea. This is not a quid pro quo. This is not a, a matter of keeping accounts. This is a matter of going, you're in need, brother. We as a church are here to help you. But also we're encouraging you to help contribute as well to the needs of those uh, who, uh, who are suffering and who are in great uh, material uh, distress. So we need to remember, um, I think this is just another side note as we begin to wrap this up. Paul is not setting out uh, an economic theory of how the state should be acting. Perhaps the state would do well for trying to, to model what the church does. Maybe, maybe not. Paul's concern is not what the Roman Empire should be doing. Paul's concern is what the church should be doing. This is a principle for the church. It's a principle that's not grounded in guilt, but it's a principle that's grounded in grace. Simply going, remember what the Lord has done for you. Let that, let that tune your heart to the right frequency to give cheerfully. Not so you can kind of let everybody know how much you give. Not that you could be guilted into giving more, but that you, see, you, can, you could see your own brother and sister in Christ in need and go, how can I help you uh, to the extent that I can help you? You might find out that somebody isn't able to pay their water bill or their light bill, and the, the light bill, let's say, is $300, and you can only contribute 25 bucks. That's okay. In proportion to what you have. See, the, the concern that we have is, is a call to love one another in light of the same love that Christ has given his people. Sometimes God gives us a surplus to teach us what it looks like to give, and then we also need to remember, as Paul says here, sometimes God gives us as individuals or as families a deficit so we might learn what it is to receive. Because I think it's hard uh, to receive as an act of grace, when we, when we want to, so many of us want to earn it, to do something to merit it. But even, even these things are, are just little pictures of the grace that's found in Christ. It is given freely and cheerfully. See, I think this is where many, uh, so many TV preachers get it wrong. They think of the language that you hear on the television when they talk about outgiving God or giving in order to get. Think of how self-referential those, those exhortations are. You give so, so you can have more money in the bank account. You can give so that this can fall back on you in some way. I think that really misses the point of Christian liberality or the, the point of Christian charity. That we forget ourselves. That we use the finances that the Lord has given us to take care of our needs. And if there's a surplus, we use it to take care of others. And then you move on. And if you're in need, you don't hesitate to ask we give of ourselves because Christ gave of himself. At Christ's ascension, he ascended on high and gave so many gifts to his church. Ephesians chapter 4, he gave us his spirit first and foremost to bind us to Christ, to make us participants of the benefits that Christ secured at the cross. But he's also given us many other gifts. The officers in the church, including our deacons, who've been set apart for this particular purpose to, to make sure that you guys are doing okay. 
not just in terms of your soul, but in terms of your body, your material need. Uh, It's so hard, I think, since we live in such a consumerist society, to reorient finances where we don't think of finances in terms of what can I get out of this. Yeah, this is why I think Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, is, is driving this hard uh, for so long with the church of Corinth because this is a materialist-driven church. Corinth is. And so Paul has to have them reorient their perspective of giving in light of the cross and in light of Scripture. It's why he cites Exodus 16. So Christ calls us to give eagerly so that everyone in the church might have their needs met, both spiritual physical. So here's the takeaway. Give. Give cheerfully. Because the Lord has provided for all of our needs and calls us to do the same for one another. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would uh, tune our hearts to sing your praise, uh, that we might give um, from a heart of love because you've given so freely to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.